exalt Jesus. Uh, great. Here's the sermon in speed, backwards. <laughs> there you go. Did you get it? Move right into response time. Okay. All right. Oh, I know. That's good. We're good. If you're wondering, why do we have to, like, pull PowerPoint over like that? It's because that computer is having a heart attack every week. And so this is just our surefire way of putting a Band-Aid over our problem until the new computer comes in, which is hopefully in the next three weeks. All right. Um, you ever taken a long road trip, trip uh, with kids? You ever done that? Okay. Well, this morning we're going to take a long road trip, and we'll have some kids with us, all right? Because at some point during our road trip, we're going to have to take a, a, a stop to, you know, you always have to take a restroom stop with kids, um, and so we're going to have to take a stop off an exit uh, halfway through, make a couple points along the way. We're going to take a long road trip together. We're going to do a road trip through the whole chapter of Philippians chapter 2, 30 verses in just a few minutes. So that's a long road trip and not a lot of time. And along the way, we're going to see a lot of different things out the windows, and we're going to make note of all those things. And I hope that if I do my job well, we're going to get to a destination where we can find a discovery that will have something to do with your life right where you are. So that's the goal. Long road trip, see a lot of things, take a pit stop, get back on the road, and make a discovery that has something to do with your life. So before we take a road trip, you have to get the car ready. So let's get the car ready by just taking a look at where we were before we ever got ready to get into the car. So if we're in, the, in this letter to the Philippians, we left off at the end of chapter 1. And there we summarize what Paul was saying with this. Let's go to this first slide. Paul said to them, don't give up, stand firm like I'm standing firm, keep living cross-formed lives. That's the summary. That's how I summarize the end of chapter 1. The Philippians, these early Christians, were walking through some type of season of suffering, just like Paul was suffering. Paul was in prison, and many of them in the city of Philippi, these early Christians, were going through some type of suffering. We don't know exactly what it all was, but we know they were suffering. And Paul looked at these early Christians knowing that a season of suffering can actually do great damage to a person's faith. And so he wants them to stand firm. We know they're suffering. Because he said this, these were the, the verses right before we stepped into the car to take our, our uh, long road trip through chapter 2. Here's what he said, Philippians 1, 29 through 30, he said, For it has been granted to you, you Philippians, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So here's a group of Christians just coming to know King Jesus as Lord of the world, not Caesar, but now Jesus. And they have formed their lives around this Jesus, but they are now walking through some type of suffering, struggling, and Paul wants them to stand firm, striving in one spirit for the gospel. But he knows there's going to be challenges along the way. And one of the biggest challenges that these early Christians are going to face in this city is their unity. 
Because as they're walking through this season of suffering, they're starting to get annoyed with one another. Their fights are beginning to break out among them. And so Paul has to continue to say, be of one mind. You strive together in one spirit. You stand firm even as you struggle as you saw I struggled. We know that there are struggles in the church. At one point later in the letter, he's going to call out two women. And typically when two people are fighting, there's more than just those two people fighting in a small church. Here's what he says, Philippians 4.2. I just want you to see where he calls these women out. He says this at the beginning of chapter 4, Philippians 4.2. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know what the conflict was about, but we know that there was tension. And that tension was happening at the same time they were going through suffering. And these are early Christians. These are early followers of King Jesus. And so Paul calls them to stand firm. You strive together in one spirit. And you be of the same mind. Now to do all of that, he's going to have to train them. He's got to train them on how to do all that. How do you stand firm, striving in one spirit, standing firm in the gospel in a season of suffering? Well, you've got to be trained. Someone's got to teach you how to do that. And so chapter 2 is a long road trip with Paul training them how to stand firm in one spirit as they go through this season of suffering. How do they stay united as a church? And so that's the road trip we're going to take. So I think maybe with all of our stuff packed, we can now get in the car and start in our journey. Chapter 2, we'll pick up with verse 1. 1 and 2, here's what we read. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then would you make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. That's how he starts the training. That's how we start our journey. So for these people to stand firm, striving together in one spirit, in a season of suffering, moving forward with the gospel, these people, these early Christians have to stay together, sharing in God's love, being of one spirit, and having one mind. Having one mind. Now, it's that idea of being of one mind, you know, becomes very important for Paul. You know, in Romans chapter 12, after he did all this big theology, he says, now be transformed in your thinking, the renewing of your mind. He told Yodi and Syntyche, even in the letter to the Philippians, you two people who are fighting, you be of one mind. And now he tells them you share in the same love and the same spirit and have the same mind. And we might miss how important what Paul does there with the language. Because he's not just saying have one mind. He's saying fix their mind on something. I want to pull here a translation from the British scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, Tom Wright. I want you to see his translation. It's the New Testament for everyone. Notice how he translates the passage to grab the language at the end of the verse. So Philippians 2, let's go forward. One more slide. Uh, Philippians 2.2, here's what he says. This is the translation, Tom Wright's translation. Then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how you do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your mind on the same object. Fix your minds on the same object. So, if you will fix your mind on the same object, then you can become the kind of people that share in the same love and spirit. And when you do that, you become the kind of people that can stand firm, striving together for the gospel, even in a season of suffering. 
So that's, that's the groundwork. So we're, we're already moving down the road a little bit. Now, when you set your minds on the same object, something's going to happen. Something will result. The result will be a command and a reality that we find in verse 3 and 4. So let's keep driving. Verse 3 and 4, here's what happens. When you have the same mind, you are fixed on the same thing. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. When, when you fix your mind on the same object, everyone's doing the same thing, you become the kind of people who live out of humility. You actually don't move out of selfish ambition or conceit. You move in a way where you value others even more than your own interests. So the question we're left with, right, is, well, what's that object? What's the thing that they are supposed to set their minds on, fixing their one mind on that object? What's the object? Because the object seems to be really important. Well, what he's going to do now is he's going to lay out a, a, a well-known Christian hymn of the day. Now, many scholars think that what we're about to read was a song being sung among Christians, these early Christians, and Paul simply took the song and put it in the letter. Now, some also think that Paul wrote the song for the first time and then early Christians started using it uh, in their gatherings. Whatever the case, this becomes a very important statement about Jesus, one of the most famous passages in his letters. So we pick up verse 5. Pick up verse 5. tells us a lot about the object they should set their minds on. Verse 5, here's what Paul writes. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's the object? Jesus is the object and the cross of Jesus. That's what you fix your minds on. And when you do that, you become the kind of people who don't act out of selfish ambition, but move out of humility concerning the interests of others more than your own interests. And when you do that, you become the kind of people that are sharing in God's love, moving in one spirit with one mind so that you can stand firm, even in a season of suffering, so that you can strive together in one spirit for the gospel. And we're really moving at this point, aren't we? We're a bit down the road. And why Jesus? Because Jesus is the perfect example of verse 3 and 4. What Jesus does is he illustrates and he puts on flesh those verses. Just so we all understand, here's how we, we want to say it. Jesus being the perfect example, he did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, he valued others above himself, not looking to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That's what we see in Jesus. All of that happens when God comes in flesh in Jesus and goes all the way to death. It is the perfect example of humility and love. 
And Paul says, I want you to take up that same mindset. I want you to have your mind shaped like his mind, and I want your life to take on his life. Now, what we've been calling that in this series is a cross-formed life. You know how I would visualize that? I'm sure you do. Here's how I'd visualize that. I would use Play-Doh to visualize that. Now, if you're getting the idea that I might use this illustration every sermon, you may be onto something, and you won't ever forget it. All right, that's the goal. Repetition's a good teacher. This is what they say. I think what Paul's doing here is he's telling the Philippians that in order for you to stand firm in the gospel, striving together, unified, you must grab and hold on to the same mindset. And whose mindset? The mindset of Jesus. And what is it about Jesus that we want you to hold on to? We want to hold on to his life, his life rooted in humility, a life where he gave up all privilege to serve others. We might visualize it by saying, what a, uh, by looking at an iron cross pressed into Play-Doh. You see, I think Paul understands, like we should, that a life, that a human life is very malleable. It is shaped by whatever is pressed into it. And for Paul, the best, really, the only way that works is to press the cross of Christ into your life so that you take on His life, you take on His mind, and so that wherever you go, you have the imprint of the cross on your life and you move forward. This is what Paul's calling them to do. This is what it looks like to take on the mindset of Christ Jesus. All right. Now, what we want to do is take a quick pit stop. You know, with all good car trips, someone's got to use the bathroom. So let's now take a moment to pull off onto an exit. And the first thing we're going to do is we'll just stop maybe at the restroom. I don't know. Pick a building because I have two points. So we need to go to one building and then we need to go to another one. So let's go to the first one. Side note, again, we're just off the exit and then we'll get back on the highway. I want to say something about privilege. Have you heard a lot about privilege right now in our current world? We hear a lot about privilege. You might hear a lot about white privilege. It's something that we hear a lot about right now. That is that there's a certain group of people because of the color of their skin that carry with them instinctually, like the structures of power are set up to give those people privilege. And the fundamental problem then with human beings is that some people hold privilege and others do not. That's the problem. So how do you solve that problem? You have to remove privilege from one group and then share it with another group, and then we can all sing Kumbaya, and everyone's good. That's the world we're living in. And so right now, the, the way it looks in the United States is that if you have white skin, then you are privileged. If you do not, you're on the underbelly of privilege. You're on the underbelly of power. That means you are oppressed. It means you receive abuse. It means you can't get ahead because you don't have the resources to do it. Do you know the one human, the one human being in all the world who has been more oppressed, treated more unjustly than anyone else? Jesus. Jesus, if anyone, was on the underside of privilege and power. No one has died a more unjust death than Jesus. And so those that are on the underside of privilege, they connect with Jesus. Because they face a world of oppression and they all look at Jesus and see a man oppressed and they connect. And so you hear a lot of this today. And it just so happens in our context, it's white skin that's the problem. 
But do you know who is the most privileged person who has ever lived? The most privileged human being in all the world? Jesus. You don't get more privileged than Jesus. If you are the Son of God, you get to claim privilege. You win. And Jesus is the most privileged. The problem in our world is not privilege. Is there injustice? Absolutely. Is there oppression? Absolutely. Can it sometimes be tied to systemic problems of injustice? Absolutely. I'm hoping next year to do a series through justice, biblical justice. But right now there's this idea that privilege is the fundamental problem. No. Jesus had all privilege. The problem is when you abuse privilege. You see what Jesus did? He took all of his privilege and he gave it up to serve others. Privilege can be a massive blessing for human flourishing. Privilege is not the problem, it is the abuse of privilege. I just want us to note that when we look at this passage, because it says that although in the very form God did not use his divinity for his own advantage, though privilege he did not use it to abuse others. There is nothing wrong with having resources, education, wealth. What happens with where the problem is is when you use it to hurt other people. And it just so happens that we as humans are being reduced to skin color and thrown into two categories. Life is a lot more complex. And when we look at Jesus, the story is a lot more, is a lot more complex than what we're hearing. All right. That's our first stop. I don't even know what that was. Was that the restroom? I don't know. But okay. Yeah, but now let's move to the snack machines. Okay? So we're going to move there. I don't know if you go to those. We don't. But let's just do it. Okay? Second point. Second point is this. We talk a lot about God in our world, right? Like we say, God this and God this. And we have like these abstract ideas of God. We like find a meme on social media or we watch Oprah and something sounds really meaningful or we look at some, some, uh, some painting with some beautiful quote and we think, ah, that's, that's who God is. The problem is if we pull all of our ideas about God from everywhere but the Bible, we're going to come up with a distorted image. If you want to know who God is, you have to look at Jesus. So we like look and we see suffering in our world. We go, where's God? I'm looking at the cross, looking at God's suffering. That's what I see. Now, I don't know why people suffer. I don't know all the deep reasons why people go through difficult challenges and why young children die and why some wicked people live forever, it seems like. I don't understand all that, but I know that God sent his son to suffer on a cross, the most unjust death that has ever been. So I know this is a God who understands. So if I want to understand God, i got to look at Jesus. And this passage is ripe with that theology. So I just want us to understand, when we talk about God, don't forget Jesus, because you can't know God without Jesus. The reason that Allah does not accurately reflect God is not just because Allah is literally a different word than God in English. It's because Allah does not have Jesus in front, behind, or beside him as God in flesh. And that means that is not God. Jesus himself said, if you want to see the Father, you've got to look at me. And because I trust Jesus as the most brilliant person in the world, I'm going with him on this. So I'm just saying, as we look at who God is, don't forget the passage about Jesus being both the one who suffered and went to the cross and then was exalted king of the world. If you want God, you have to have him. They go together. They're a package deal. We call that the Trinity. All right. Let's get back in the car. That was a lot. There was a lot going on on that stop. Like, that was a, that was a significant exit stop. All right. Let's get back in the car. 
Now, with all this said, Paul, Paul telling them to become the kind of people stamped with the cross, well, now he's going to take it and he's going to move it into some application. He wants them to take that reality of becoming a people with the mindset of Jesus. He wants to now get them to take some next steps. That's what he's going to do in the next set of verses. Here's what he says. Pick it up, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. Now do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and corrupted generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But we'll stop there. Let's just stop there. We'll pick up verse 17 in a minute. So that's a lot of movement there. And remember, we're, dri- we're driving fast right now. We've got to keep moving at a pretty good speed. So I just want to notice two things as we're looking out the window on those verses that are really important. So as these people have the cross pressed into the center of their lives, carrying and picking up, pressing into their mind that of Christ Jesus, becoming cross-formed people, he wants them to take that salvation, and he wants them to work it out. Now, that doesn't mean, like, do a lot of work so you can be saved. It means take the salvation of the cross that you now have, and I want you to press it into your real life. Practically, what does it look like to be cross-formed people at work or when you're, doing, when you're working in the yard or when you're cooking dinner? Like, what does it look like to be cross-formed people? What happens when someone hurts you? What does that look like? What does that mean for your real life? To work out your salvation is to be practical. So that was the first. Let's, go, let's just make sure we got that first number one up there. Next slide. There we go. And now let's go to number two. The second thing I see is that when you work it out, when you bring your salvation into your real life, you become the kind of people who shine like stars, shine like stars in a dark world. You see the logic? You see the flow here? Let's summarize it. Let's go to the next slide. Let's summarize everything we see here. If they, that is the Philippians, put the cross at the center of their lives, they will do nothing out of selfish ambition In humility, they'll value others above themselves. They'll work out their salvation practically in real life. And they'll shine like lights in a dark world. Like that list right there, that's a great eulogy. Like if I die today and Terry or someone has to do my funeral, just put that slide up. That's all I need. Like just say I was that kind of person. I'm good. Do you see how how appealing that kind of life would be? I want to get to know people like that. This is the kind of person I want to be. And so halfway through, halfway through our road trip, I'm looking at this summary saying, that's a good vision. That's a good kind of life. I want that life. But you can't have that kind of life. You can't become the kind of person who acts out of humility, forsaking selfish ambition and vain conceit. You can't be that kind of person. You can't be the kind of person... Who, who shines like a light in a dark world. You can't become a kind of person that glows if you don't get the rest of the chapter. So now what we're going to do is we're going to throttle down. I mean, so if, I'm gonna, if, if we're thinking in terms of a road trip, I'm going to break the law and we're going 100 miles an hour to the finish. Okay? Here we go. There's no cops on the road, so it's fine. Like, I can do it. Here it is. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Let's get to our destination. 
Because to do everything and to become the kind of people that we've just reviewed, you got to have verses 17 through 30. Watch how all that works. Let's read it, and then let's, let's bring the insight. 17 through 30, here we go. Paul says this, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Now, I have no one else like him who will show you genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the, with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that, you, so that when you see him, Again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. You see the secret of becoming the kind of people that have the mindset of Christ, so that we can strive together in one spirit, of one mind, even in seasons of sufferings, so that we advance the gospel. You saw the secret. You have to have someone else helping you. Can you imagine throwing a little kid into a room and say, learn to write? Now, I understand in our current context, we kind of are doing that. We're saying, here's a computer, learn to write, you kindergartner. I get it. Like, all, all those things aside, a child cannot learn to write without what? A teacher. And where does that teacher need to be? Right next to him or her right? Taking their little hand and forming those letters. And then after they begin to form those letters, that teacher stands right next to the child and corrects them along the way. And then over time, after enough training, after the teacher has modeled good writing, they become the kind of people that can do it themselves. And they'll grow up one day, and I bet maybe they'll be, if they have kids, they'll teach their children how to write too. You know how you become an electrician in the United States? You, you connect yourself to someone who teaches you how to do it. Do you want an electrician on your house that only read books? Nope, not me. I don't want that. I want James Hammock. By the way, if you need electrical work, James Hammock is a great... I'm just joking. Okay, okay. He's one of our elders. I felt if he was here, that would have been fun. Okay, all right. And he will give you a discount because I did that. He'll give you a 50% discount. All right? Okay. Yeah, now I'm really joking. Yeah, yeah, now I need to step down off the platform Come lying. All right, okay. But you get the point. You need people beside you. And who are the people Paul just put forward? Because he not only said he wants to go and eventually be with the Philippians, he's going to send Timothy, and he's going to send Epaphroditus. And what is it about T Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus that he highlights? That all of them have the mindset of Christ Jesus. They, they are living the kind of lives that model a Christ-formed life. 
Just take a look. Let's go to this last, one of these last slides. Go, go to this next one. Paul, look at what he said. I am being poured out like a drink offering. You know who else poured themselves out? Jesus. Timothy, he says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. You know who else had genuine concern for others and didn't consider their own interests but the interests of others? Jesus. And then Epaphroditus. Oh, he almost died for the work of Christ. And then he says, when you see him again, you'll be glad. When you see him face to face, you know who else gave his life so others may be glad? Jesus. The Philippians don't become the kind of people who have the cross pressed into their lives, the kind of people that don't do anything out of vain ambition or uh, selfish ambition or vain conceit unless they have people like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus that are next to them, showing them how to do it. And just to make sure that Paul doesn't miss the point, soon he's going to make it explicit. Look at Philippians 3.17. We'll get here eventually in the series, but Philippians 3.17, Paul writes, join together in following my example. It's like you couldn't make it any clearer until he does. Look at what he says next. Brothers and sisters, and just as, as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Eventually, that will be Paul himself as he comes back to visit the Philippians. Eventually, it will be Timothy who Paul will send to them. It will eventually be Epaphroditus who, who displayed the kind of love, a Christ-formed life. They're all going to be around the Philippians, and Paul says, you keep your eyes on them. You keep your eyes on them. You see, this is kind of the end of, the, this is the end of our journey. This is the end of our road trip. In order to become the kind of people that move out of humility, who can strive together in one spirit, sharing God's love, even in seasons of suffering, to become those kind of people together as a church and individually, with privilege or no privilege, oppressed or oppressed or doing really well, whatever, wherever you find yourself, to become the kind of person that can be described like that, you've got to have someone helping you along the way. You're going to have to watch someone who's a little more advanced in the kingdom. That's how we do it. So let's make some application. Application's a bit quick this morning. This is like us getting out of the car and unpacking. Here it is. Here's one thing that gets on the ground for us right where we are. We need to fix our minds on Jesus and his cross regularly. You're going to have to do that. If you do not put the cross at the center of your lives, something else will go there. So we retreat to the cross regularly, putting Jesus right there in front of us. That's one way that we pick up the cross, press it into our lives, take on a cross-formed life. So we've got to make sure, keep that always in front of us. What we put into the mind will shape the kind of life we have. But to help us with that, we've got to have the second point of application. The second point is this. It's coming. Here it comes. Get close to people living cross-formed lives. So this is a bit, we've got like a hybrid version here in our church, right? So it's really important to get here physically. You cannot underestimate how important it is that we gather in person because that is our opportunity to watch one another. And there are some of you that I'm watching. Now, I'm not watching Wayne. Okay, listen, I know you were thinking that. No, I'm not watching Wayne. He's watching me, y'all, okay? Look, you see what's happening right here? He's watching me. All right, okay. I'm just joking, Wayne, kind of. Um, so, okay. When we come together, we watch each other. We're watching how we experience our weeks and how we talk 
We get, to, we get to model one another. And those that are most advanced, we get to model our lives after them. Why do you think that God set up the church to have elders and deacons so that we could watch them as they shepherd us? This is the way God set this up. Now, we're in the hybrid because it's, for some, it is not safe to gather in person regularly. And so we have a lot of people right now on our conference line. That's like our reality. Like that's a season we're in. And so for those that are listening in, those that aren't making their way out regularly among people, then that means that they have to do the hard work of making sure to have someone in front of them mentoring them. And those can be dead people. So Dallas Willard and C.S. Lewis are two of my dead mentors. I read them regularly. This morning, I was in conversation with C.S. Lewis. I'm rereading Mere Christianity. And I was blessed by a lot of things C.S. Lewis had to say this morning. And so I just make sure to walk with them. And so if you can't get out, if you only are able to stay in your room most, like most of the time, make sure to be picking up someone and learning from them. I know that there have been many people along the century, uh, in, uh, over the centuries, people who followed Jesus and have gone long in the kingdom. You know who one of the best mentors has been for them? Paul, James, and John. Those are mentors for a lot of Christians. So if you've got a Bible, you have some dead mentors. I'm just saying, make sure you get close to people that are following the cross. All right, let's take a next step. Next step. This is where we're like settling down. Road trip done. Let's just reflect on where we've been. Here's the next step for this week. Notice who is helping you learn the way of Jesus. Just notice. What you might notice is you don't have anyone you're actually watching to learn to follow Jesus. What you might notice is that you've actually had some people along the way that you need to get even closer to. Maybe Paul has been a blessing to you over the years, and you need to read some of his letters this week. I don't know. But notice who you're watching, because you will take on the form of whoever you're watching. So if you watch TV all the time, you're taking on the qualities of those commentators. If all you do is listen to talk radio, you're taking on the form of those hosts. Whatever you're putting in is who you are becoming. So get close to people and model your life after them. That's where Paul would take us. Now, in two weeks, when we pick up on our series, we're going to see Paul going a little bit deeper into his life. It's going to have a lot to say about what we've just said this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you inspired Paul to write this letter, and we're thankful that you called these people in Philippi. We're thankful that we can glean all of these insights, and we thank you for those people in our lives who have modeled Jesus for us, who have taken on a cross-formed life, life so that we could also follow them. Help us. We need it. We need help. So put the people in front of us, put mentors in our path, and may we continue to walk forward, and may we be of one mind, striving, sharing in your love as we move forward in the gospel. We thank you for all of that, and we pray it in the name of Jesus, our King. And together we say, amen. So we're going to move into a time of response. We've sang songs. We've, uh, we've come into contact with God's Word. We've prayed. Uh, we're going to take communion together, and we're going to give up tithes and offerings. And if you have a decision, you catch me afterwards. I want to highlight our missions partner we're highlighting this morning, Emmanuel Christian Seminary. Now, this is my alma mater. So this is a, I went to this seminary. And there are many people across the world, in the United States, and even in our region, even, uh, in the Carolinas and Virginia, who went to Emmanuel, and they are serving in churches or in other ministries, helping bring people to Jesus. And 
there are people influenced by them that are around the communion table because they were shaped at Emmanuel. So I just want us to know that as we financially support Emmanuel Christian Seminary, we are part of a much bigger family than just our church family and those on our conference line. We are part of a worldwide group of people that have knit, been knit together in part because of Emmanuel and the people they have trained. So I just want us to, that to be on our mind. Now, as we take communion today, we're going to like walk to the communion table. Let's be aware that the people walking to the communion table, you and me, we are shaping each other. Let's keep that in mind. As we remember and we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection, in the end, as we take communion, the cross sits forefront. So let's remember that he is our reigning king, and we take on his life, and we do it together, and we do it with help, like a teacher helping a little child learning to write. We do it together. All right, Terry, do you mind coming up and praying? Uh, and then we will do like we normally do. I think everyone in the room is already taking communion here. So, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to this part of the service where the cross really becomes front and center. And we see you hanging on that cross. And no matter who we're following as far as our journey is concerned, we always see in the distance you hanging on that cross, showing us that you are willing to give up everything so that we might have a path to heaven. Thank you, Father, for that sacrifice. And as we partake of the loaf, which represents your broken body, and the cup, which represents your shed blood, may it draw each and every one of us a little closer to thee. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
thanks again, Jason, for the trip you took us on. And uh, let, let us stand and think about uh, pressing the cross of Christ uh, in your heart and your life and be informed by Jesus and